The following audio is from the Grove Church. To find out more about our church or to check out previous messages, go to our website at grove.church. Yes, that was the sound of taking a bite out of something. So in case you're wondering what was that noise, that's what that was. But uh, anyway, hey, welcome today. Good morning. I hope you're doing well as we uh, continue to plow through 2023. Here we are, uh, what, the third Sunday of the month, and uh, I'm glad that you're here. We're in a series, as you can see on the screen there, called Made to Crave. If you're looking for a spot in Scripture that we're going to land, we'll be in Mark chapter 4, so you can turn there. If you got a Bible, that's great. If you got a smartphone with a Bible app, that works as well. I want to give a shout-out to Faith. If you saw the announcement video, that was one of our young people in our student ministry. Her name is Faith, and she did a great job. She was also over here on the worship team today, so she's having a busy Sunday, but uh, I love seeing the next generation rise up and uh, take their places in the kingdom. Amen. Amen. So love that. Also, um, earlier when we were doing communion, uh, I, I opened my the lid to grab the, the bread or the little wafer, and I had two in mine. And um, I leaned over to Jen thinking how lucky I was, and she goes, it's because you need extra grace. And uh, so <laughs> I just, just want to let you know this will be her last Sunday on our team, and uh, just encourage you, make sure you say your goodbyes. We also have an opening if you want to turn in a resume. Uh, that would be really Really great. No, it was just kind of funny. Also, I, I want to celebrate something. Um, some of you are aware, many of you maybe you're not, but December 4th we began a, a, a giving campaign called Legacy, and it's towards the renovation that's coming up as we kind of get into the year a little ways, looking at after Easter, somewhere towards summer, beginning a pretty major renovation, and we opened up a, a giving campaign for $3 million, and I want to celebrate that we did, uh, we reached the, the million mark in pledges after just a bunch of weeks coming into the new year. And so um, I think that's awesome. I also want to encourage you, if you have yet to make a pledge, we have a ways to go. And I want to encourage you to take a step like that. You can look at the details. There's booklets there in the lobby. You can also find more information on our app or online. But uh, I know we, we say things like it takes all of us for we to win. I appreciate so much many of you that have made pledges that have given. But we still have quite a ways to go over the next three years. So I want to encourage you to take a step like that, but we're making some headway, and I just wanted to stop and celebrate because I think it's an awesome thing, so awesome. Uh, also, uh, we, we uh, last week gave you some homework. Anybody remember this? Okay, a few of you remember. A few of you are like, no, I don't remember at all. What I said was, as we jumped into our series, Made to Crave, yes, uh, last week was part one, the homework was, I want you to memorize Psalm 119, verse 105. Now, anybody want to raise your hand and say, I memorized Psalm 119, verse 105, okay? So there's about four or five hands, so we're doing awesome. Okay, that's about 0.1% of people that are, no. Um, some of you already know it because you listened to Amy Grant a long time ago. And in fact, somebody actually posted, I thought that was just an Amy Grant song. I'm like, it is, but it's scripture. And she didn't write it. Uh, you know, the writer of Psalm 119 wrote it. But anyway, um, <clears throat> if you listen to Amy Grant, she sung it like this. <clears throat> <clears throat> Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. That's why I don't lead worship, okay? My wife is always amazed. She goes, man, when you sing, you sing in multiple keys. And I don't even do it on purpose, so you're welcome. But uh, your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. And so I encourage you, if you didn't put that to memory yet, 
It is pretty simple. I want to encourage you to memorize it. And, and as you continue to kind of put it in your head, to think about it and what Scripture can do. As we continue through this series, we've talked about the value of Scripture. We're going to talk a bit about the history, where it came from, things like that. And one of the tensions that I feel is that this series, um, our messages are going to be part kind of challenge and inspiration, but also part information and education, almost like a, kind of a Sunday school class or a class that you take. And so I do encourage you to be a note taker. There's some things you might learn that I think could be helpful for you. But like I said, we're going to land in Mark chapter 4. I'm going to read a bit of that. So if you got your Bible, you can look at that. It will be on the screen. But Mark chapter 4, starting in verse 3, Jesus is teaching, and he says this, Listen, a farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path, and the birds came and ate it up. Some fell on rocky places where it didn't have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched, and they withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among the thorns, which grew up and choked the plants so that they did not bear grain. Still other seed, verse 8, fell on good soil. It came up, grew, and produced a crop, some multiplying 30, some 60, and some 100 times. Then Jesus said, whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. I'm going to fast forward a couple of verses. It says in verse 13, Then Jesus said to them, to the disciples now, he was speaking to the crowd before, now he's speaking to the disciples specifically, Don't you understand this parable? How then will you understand any parable? The farmer sows the word. So Jesus is going to break this down. The farmer sows the word. Some people are like seed along the path, where the word is sown. As soon as they hear it, Satan comes and takes away the word that was sown in them. Other seed, other, excuse me, others like seed sown on rocky places hear the word and at once receive it with joy. But since they have no root, they last only a short time. When trouble comes or when persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. Still others like seed sown among thorns hear the word, but the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth and the desire for other things come in and choke the word, making it unfruitful. Others, like seeds sown on good soil, hear the word, accept it, and it produces a crop, some 30, some 60, and some 100 times what was sown. Jesus, we stop today. I want to pray. Thank you for the scripture. Thank you for the living word. But I pray today as we navigate through this text and, and, and hopefully through the work of your spirit, feel the challenge and maybe even for some the sting of conviction that, God, we would live in that place of surrender. I pray and my desire in this series is that hearts come alive. There's a new stirring, a new craving for the truth of scripture that we would allow to look into our lives, would allow to transform us because being who you are, being the nature of, of your grace and your love towards us. You want what's best for us. And while that's not always easy to accept, I pray we would walk out trusting that that's what you have as we compare our lives to what the word says in Jesus name. Amen. So again, for some of you that have been in, in church world for a length of time, you're familiar with this text, and you've heard it taught many times. In fact, I can go back and probably look at many notes I've done in series in years past on this text in Mark chapter 4. But today I want to take some time and review some of it, and then we're going to talk a bit about the whole of Scripture. So there's kind of two parts to how today's going to go, and it starts out where I want to start out is really verse 14, where Jesus explains to the disciples the details of this 
parable. And in verse 14, he basically says this, the farmer sows the word. And, and, and so again, just a simple few words here that's a whole verse, but the farmer is, in, in, in Jesus' parable, the idea of God sowing the word or a teacher, a rabbi for us, a pastor, somebody like that, sowing, teaching the word. And so it's pretty simple there. And the word in this context is the scriptures. Now, when Jesus is talking about the word, in particular the scriptures, we're obviously not talking about what you and I have as the 66 books of what we call the Bible or the scriptures as we know them. When Jesus is teaching this to the disciples, we're talking about the Old Covenant. So the Old Testament, again, we'll get into a little more in this series in a little bit today, what we mean by Old Covenant covenant, but the word are the scriptures. Verse 15 says, some people are like seed along the path. Now, let me make sure you understand when Jesus is talking about this, what he's trying to do is get the disciples, for many of us in here that would say that we're followers of Christ, is to get you and I to, to allow this reflection on what's happening in our hearts. And what Jesus is saying is, People are going to respond in different ways to the word, to the scriptures being sown in their lives. And so this is the point where for you and I, it's the stop and reflect. It's the stop and consider what's going on inside of us. What is the condition of our hearts as the word of God is spoken or as you sit down in your living room or in your prayer room or in your bedroom or at work in the break room or even in your car and you open up and read scripture, you should stop and consider what is the condition of my heart. Jesus said some hearts, some soil, when the word or when the seed is being sown, he says some is like seed sown along the path, verse 15. As soon as they hear it, Satan comes and takes away the word that was sown in them. And by the way, this first example that Jesus gives is the harshest example of a response to the scriptures, and that is this, no response at all. It doesn't even get as far as doing anything within the individual's mind or heart. It doesn't stir anything to bring about any level of change. And Jesus said, it's the enemy that comes and steals it away. And by the way, for you and I, I think it's important to understand, in, in our modern world, we tend to look at the idea in general, or this world does, looks at the idea of good and evil as some general force out there, or there's good things and bad things, there's, there's you know, positive and negative, or, or virtue and vice. But Jesus specifically will remind us over and over, there is an enemy. And when you look at the whole, and by the way, as we get into the whole story of Scripture, it is the picture of an enemy of our souls. And Jesus is not afraid to say to the disciples, and it's something for you and I to really consider. There is an enemy wanting to steal away the work of God within your heart. Let me take you for a few moments to Proverbs. If you've ever read the book of Proverbs, it's a book of wisdom. It's within the poetic literature of Scripture but as you get into it, it's couplets that navigate all kinds of issues, again, within the human heart. The idea that you can live by wisdom or you can live foolish. You can live evil or you can live according to virtue. There are different principles that you and I can take on within our lives that will sharpen and draw us nearer in our walk with Christ or that can dull us and harden us. 
And over and over in Proverbs, when it talks about the idea of being overcome by evil, there's two specific examples in Proverbs that it talks about uh, as far as the heart's condition. One is the foolish, the, the ones who might, might, you know, make a decision based on just being dumb and ignorant. And again, it's a question for your own self where you fall in this category. So these, the idea of the idea of being dumb, being ignorant about evil, and so you fall prey to it because you just go, I didn't know. And you think a lot of times of teenagers growing up, learning to make right decisions, they stumble over themselves, and then you get into adulthood, and are those patterns continuing? That's a problem. It means you need to really reflect, which is a great message for you to do that. But Proverbs talks about the idea of being a fool, and so you fall prey to certain things, or simply being wicked, being evil. You know truth, but you refuse to allow it to penetrate your heart. You refuse to consider your life and, and make a decision based on the humility within you, but instead you're given to the pride of, I'm going to do it my way, period. And Jesus says the first soil is the path where when the seed is sown, the birds of the air come and eat it and take it away. Which, by the way, if you're reading the reading plan and you're up on it, the plan we've put out there, you're in the story of Joseph. In the story of Joseph, he ends up at one point in prison. This is the Joseph of Genesis, not Joseph and Mary. But in, in the story of Genesis, Joseph is in prison, and there's a, a couple guys that have dreams. And one of the guy is a cupbearer to the king, and the other guy is a baker, and there is no candlestick maker. But anyway, um, <laughs> a little bonus there. But um, in the story, it says that they both have dreams, and one of them has a dream that he's squeezing grapes into a cup and handing them before Pharaoh. And, and Joseph says, your dream means that in three days' time, you're going to go before the king and you'll be, be restored to your position and taken out of prison. And the, the baker's like, that's great news. Here's my dream. Hopefully it's really good. And Joseph's like, tell me your dream. And the guy goes, well, I had a dream that I had a basket on my head and there was all kinds of bread in it and the birds of the air were coming and eating the bread out of my, the basket on my head. And Joseph goes, oh, your dream means that in three days, you're going to be impaled on a pole and the birds are going to come pick at your flesh. Can you imagine, like, that's, I want his news. Like, come on, I got ripped off here. And again, we don't know the backstory of what crimes they committed or what brought them to end up in prison. All we know is that something bad's going to go on with this dude. The reason I even bring that up, though, is because over and over in Scripture, there's this idea, this analogy, this kind of picture that the idea of birds coming and picking out certain things is, is a problem, is a bad, a negative example of, of things that happen in our lives. And Jesus says, some seed falls along the path and there's an enemy that snatches it away so that you don't even consider or receive any bit of what the word has to say. And by the way, I would encourage any one of us in this room that we're not exempt just because we consider ourselves followers of Christ and we're in a good spot. There are in any moment of our lives times where you and I can be readers of Scripture and we don't even allow it to penetrate our hearts at all. We just kind of read through it. We check the box on the app, and it says, congratulations, you, you, know, you completed day 15 of the reading plan. You're like, great, and you walk away, but there's no change. In a similar way, when Jesus talks about this soil, it's not only a problem for those who refuse to acknowledge anything about the word. It can become a problem in all of our hearts when you and I read about things like gossip, and yet we're given to gossip, and we don't allow anything to penetrate our hearts. When you and I are given to unforgiveness and bitterness and anger and lashing out and burning bridges because of our attitudes and our pride, but we don't allow the Holy Spirit to soften us and deal with that stuff in us so that we're brought to repentance. Issues of immorality or addiction and getting into things that are, are, are vices in us, but we go, that's just my thing, it is what it is. And I, you know, we don't allow it to convict us. Warning. 
the enemy will snatch away what the word of God wants to do even in our lives. Which we begin to get into the examples of the other two that Jesus is going to talk about here. Verse 16, he says, others like seed sown on rocky places. So you have the path, which is kind of cobblestones that are hammered into the ground and there's you know, sort of the sand or, or dirt around them. But now this is rocky places. The kind of soil that you dig into and you can barely get a shovel in because there's rocks all in it. You can plant certain things and stuff will start to grow, but it won't continue. And that's what he's talking about. They hear the word. And so the, the, the good point is it starts out positive. They hear the word and they receive it with joy. And we see people like this all over within church world, being in this now for 22 years as a, as a calling. I've seen this over and over. People that hear the word receive it. And you see the transformation, this passion. But there's a warning, he says. But since they have no root, they last only a short time. When trouble comes or when persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. And by the way, let me expound on this just a little bit. And while persecution in, in Western world or in America looks a bit different than persecution in other parts of the world where you can be arrested, you can be tortured, you can be martyred, killed for your faith, having a Bible in your hands at all, it's not like that in America, at least at this point. We have certain freedoms, and that's great, but what does it look like? That, that maybe for you, and, and, and by the way, I want to challenge you with this. You show up at a restaurant, you go out to eat, and instead of stopping to thank God because you're in a public place, oh, people are going to think I'm a weirdo, Let's, we'll, we'll just pray at home. Or your friends, when you, when you lean into your faith, you go, oh, you're one of those religious people now, huh? You feel the tension of people who don't get you. Or you live a different way, and people go, oh, you're, you're not into that. You don't do that. People call you a prude or holy roller or whatever it might be. It looks a little different in America, but nevertheless, it causes you to maybe to pull back even just a little bit on what you know in your heart your faith maybe should look like in the public arena. But sometimes it's even within our own selves, this idea that, that while it's not persecution from the outside, we feel this tension in us of what we might look like if we open our Bibles in a public place like at a coffee shop, heaven forbid. I've had incredible conversations with people all over the place in coffee shops and I open my Bible and I'm doing some reading and somebody goes, oh, you're reading the Bible, huh? And I get all kinds of reactions. Some of them really good, some of them super positive, some of them encouraging, some of them not so much. But nevertheless, it's fun to engage in those conversations. When I'm on an airplane, they're stuck sitting next to me for hours at a time. <laughs> I've had great conversations and really weird conversations. About, oh, that's what you believe, well, here's what I believe, and then shrooms, and whatever else, and okay, that's spirituality. All kinds of great conversations, but the hope being that by shining lights and opportunity to help people understand there's something other than maybe the direction they're going in their lives. But sometimes we feel the tension in us of, of you know, what people would think, and, and we kind of let it have a backseat in our lives, danger. We don't want to be ashamed of, of what God's word can do in us. The other side of it that I would include in this is this. Sometimes in our lives, things get hard. And the person, persecution that we feel isn't from others persecuting us as much as what it is is you, you read something in Scripture and you realize your life doesn't line up and you go, that must, be not, that must not be what it means. And you continue to justify whatever it is you continue to do. And you can say, well, that doesn't look like persecution. No, no, not persecution from the outside. Persecution from your flesh individual, your, your flesh man inside of you going, hey, I don't want you to give up this habit. You enjoy it too much. You enjoy this pattern. You enjoy living this way. When you and I are confronted as readers of Scripture with Scripture, something has to give. And unfortunately, sometimes in our lives, what gives is the Word of God. What gives is what Scripture says about how to live. I think a really great example in our world is this. 
unmitigated, unlimited forgiveness. For you and I to understand, as just one example, you and I are called to constantly forgive others. And, and this, this year, we have a series slotted about forgiveness and the details of it because we really deeply in our world misunderstand forgiveness. But here's the thing. When you and I can wrap our heads around what God has done for us in Christ and the value of the forgiveness we've been able to receive because of the cross, it ought to put us in a place to go, wow, I really ought to, I really need to forgive others. And that doesn't always feel good. And by the way, forgiveness isn't based on a feeling. When our lives are, are, are lining up with Scripture and we're challenged to not gossip, but we're called to forgive, we're called to lay down anger, whatever examples it might be, what gives way? And then another one, and this is another warning one. While it doesn't look like persecution for you and I, I've seen a lot of people that start out in Jesus and they start well, but because the roots aren't growing deep, they get bored. And they kind of walk away. And that's sometimes the story you hear people that say, well, I did religion once. Or I did the Jesus thing for a season. And sometimes the, the comment is, it just didn't work for me. And I would challenge anybody with it. It's, it's not about how it feels. That our faith is not about how it feels. Sure, we want to have this zeal every day. And yet what happens sometimes is you and I end up in, in kind of the doldrums. The doldrums, by the way, if you don't know, is, is, is a nautical term. It's the idea that you're out there in the ocean on a boat and the wind is, is non-existent and the seas are calm and yet the masts are up. That's the doldrum. You're not going to get anywhere. And in a season like that, what do you do? You just sit around and do nothing. Well, hold on. Continue to check your cargo. You need to make sure your ropes are prepared. So you need to, to, to be aware how you're, the condition of your masts. Look at the inventory of what's on the ship so that you have time to you know, make sure the meals are prepared and everything's ready to go so that when the wind does come, you're ready to go again. And in the same way in our lives, I believe spiritually God sends our way the doldrums, the boredom of our faith. And you would go, I rebuke you. We're supposed to always be zealous. I rebuke you. Doesn't it say in Isaiah, even use your tired and weary? Young men, someone fall, but those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. Mount on wings as eagles, run and not be weary, walk and not be faint. I rebuke you, pastor. And I would encourage you with this. You and I navigating seasons in our lives of what would be kind of spiritual boredom is a test of our faith, whether you see it that way or not. To navigate through, to continue on in our faith when we don't feel anything. I mean, you're not going to like this next comment, but it's true too. That's how marriage works. I've been This year, I will have been married 24 years. And, and if you've been married for longer than a month, you know you face moments where it's like, well, don't feel anything, but here we are. <laughs> and you go, are you seriously still married? Why hasn't your wife left you yet? But those that have been married for a length of time, you know what I'm talking about. It's not based on emotion. There are days in my 24 years of marriage almost that, that my heart bursts and I'm amazed how much I love my wife. And there are days where I don't feel it, but I'm still committed to the marriage because that's what love is. It's not a feeling. For some of you, you're like, oh, that's what's going on in my marriage. It's not about a feeling. It's about a commitment. If we live by how we feel, how many things would we bail out on on any given day of our lives? And our faith can be that way. And too many people get bored of it and go, I got to try some other spiritual thing because this thing didn't work. Don't give up. 
you've got to continue because the roots have got to grow down. And again, we'll get to good soil in a minute. Still others, like seeds sown among thorns, picture that, hear the word. The idea is they respond. There's something that begins to grow. But the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the desires for other things come in and choke the word out, making it unfruitful. This is people, again, that something is moved in them by the initial hearing of the word. And yet what happens among this passion for what God wants to do is other things that grow up. And it's a great comment or a great challenge to every one of our hearts. What's in us that's growing up along with the virtue of the word of God? Are there other desires that are growing right along with it? Because what Jesus is saying is if you let those things continue to be fed, if you continue to allow those things in your life to be nurtured, they will eventually overshadow and choke out the fruitfulness of the word. The deceitfulness of wealth, the idea that if you could just have the next big adventure or the next purchase or, or this other thing that will make you happy, that will do it. Jesus says those things will choke out the word. It's that reminder that we can be busy acquiring things or experiences or, or, or what we want for our kids, a warning to parents. And, and, and my youth pastor used to say this, what you do in moderation, your kids will do in excess. And I've unfortunately seen this. And I've also fortunately seen this. But it's a warning for all of us in the world that we live in that there's something about, I'm a cheesy dad, but I put it this way in my notes, if along the road of life, your spiritual life often takes a back seat for your kids, it's not even gonna end up in the trunk. And I know that's a super cheesy way to put it, but it's true. I have a deep concern for parents these days and I see what I see and, and I'm not anti because my kids are into sports and the busyness of extracurricular activities. I'm not anti those. But what I see is a focus sometimes so much on that that you don't see a priority for the spiritual formation of children. And I'm warning you, these pitfalls will eventually Develop kids that may care all kinds of ways about the things they're successful at in this world, but not their own souls. And I can't stand here and tell you what the answer is because I don't necessarily think the answer is you pull your kids out of everything and that is to church stuff. And I would say this, as a parent, you bear the responsibility to pray, God, show me how to do this. Show me what to do. Show me where I've got to draw that line. Because at the end of the day, my wife and I have said this many times, the most important thing in our hearts and our lives is that our kids learn to love Jesus, however that looks. That our kids care deeply about God's design for their lives. And, and again, what I see in our world is that this world vacuums them up like crazy. And, and we're called to be the front lines. And the church wants to help. It's why as Grove Kids, I'm proud of our team, Connect Four, Two, Three, Connect Four, Five, Champions Club, for kids with unique needs. A youth ministry, winter camp, things like, man, we want our young people to love Jesus. But we can't do it all, and we're not called to do it all. It also rests on the shoulders of every parent in the room, even if your kids are older now, 18, 20, 25, even 30. What do we do? Because we're, we're never done parenting. 
The oldest people in the room that have kids that are in their 60s and 70s understand that. You're not done parenting just because your kids are older. It just looks different. It should anyway, but that's... Actually, that is another sermon series slotted coming up in this year. But anyway, okay. Um, let, let, me, let me get to this. Finally, he says, Others like seeds sown on good soil hear the word, accept it, and produce a crop, some 30, 60, 100 times what is sown. This is the same category as the, the second two examples that he gives. But he says they, they, they don't just have that initial acceptance and so uh, roots begin to grow. But the idea is they accept, they, they, they continue to allow this thing to nourish what needs to develop so that fruit happens in their lives. For the sake of time, I'm going to cut some of the reading that I wanted to do. But... Um, Eugene Peterson wrote a book called Eat This Book, and he's talking about how you and I need to learn what it means to devour Scripture. And I'm going to read a simple example that he brings up even as you kind of open uh, the first chapter. And, and he says this, Years ago, I owned a dog who had a fondness for large bones. Fortunately for him, we lived in the forested foothills of Montana. In his forest rambles, he often came across a carcass of a white-tailed deer that had been brought down by coyotes. Later, he would show up on our stone lakeside patio carrying or dragging his trophy, usually a shank or a rib. He was a small dog, and the bone was often as nearly as large as he was. Anyone who owned a dog knows the routine. He would prance and gamble playfully before us with his prize, wagging his tail, proud of his find, courting our approval. And of course, we approved. We lavished praise, telling him what a good dog he was. But after a while, sated with our applause, he would drag the bone off 20 yards or so to a more private place, usually the shade of a large moss-covered boulder, and go to work on the bone. The social aspects of the bone were behind him. Now the pleasure became solitary. He gnawed the bone, turned it over and over, licked it, worried it. Some, uh, sometimes we could hear a low rumble or growl. What in a cat would be a purr. He was obviously enjoying himself and in no hurry. After a leisurely couple of hours, he would bury it and return the next day to take it up again. An average bone lasted about a week. I'm going to skip a bunch here. But he says this in the same way with the dog. I'm interested, talking about us, in cultivating this kind of reading. The only kind of reading that is congruent with what is written in our holy scriptures, but also with writing that is intended to change our lives and not stuff information into the cells of our brains. All serious and good writing anticipates precisely this kind of reading. Ruminating, leisurely, a dalliance with words in contrast to wolfing down information. But our canonical writers who wrestled God's revelation into Hebrew... Aramaic and Greek sentences, Moses, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Mark, Paul, Luke, John, Matthew, David, along with numerous other brothers and sisters, named and unnamed, absolutely require it. They make up a school of writers employed by the Holy Spirit to give us our holy scriptures and keep us in touch with and responsive to reality. By keeping company with the writers of holy scripture, we are schooled in a practice of reading and writing that is infused with enormous respect, more than respect, odd reverence for the revelatory and transformative power of words. His point, in short, is that in the example of his dog gnawing on a bone over and over, upside down and, up and right side up, is how he wants to challenge us to consider the scriptures, not just to read to check the box, but how they transform 
that when you and I consider to, to, to the furthest degree out as you pan out from something, similar to being an astronaut on the moon looking back at the orb of the earth and seeing the whole of it, to take the biggest picture that I can give you of the scripture, and that is this. When you take the 66 books of the Bible in a really brief nutshell, what it is, is God's love story. That's the biggest picture that I can give you to start with. But then to drill down even just a little bit in the form of Jesus, the Word. If you remember last week, we talked about in John 1, the disciple says in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He's speaking of Jesus, the one who came to bring the light. Thy Word is a light to my feet, or a lamp to my feet, a light to my path. To consider as you, as you drill down even further into it from, you know, way back and into Jesus, but looking at the word and realizing it's old covenant and new covenant. Old covenant being what the disciples would have read. The Old Testament from Genesis to Malachi, from Pentateuch, the first five books, to historical, to, to poetic, to prophetic books. And we're going to talk about how those fit together. To 400 years of silence historically, until all of a sudden, as you look at the beginning of Matthew and the beginning of Luke, and you read about Zechariah and Elizabeth and Mary and Joseph and Jesus and John the Baptist and all of that, the Gospels, to Acts, the history of the first century church, the Pauline letters written in care of the church and how we ought to even look at our lives today to non-Pauline epistles, to Revelation. To realize the work of God and his love story for you, only realizing that the picture constantly points to a savior in Jesus. Why do I bring it all up? Why do I belabor it? Why do I take long today? Because my hope would be, and I've said it with this series, but, but as we jump in even today for you to consider, God, what's the condition of my heart as I'm challenged to look at scripture? I don't want it to be so hard where I just read it, check the box and move on and nothing changes because that's like Satan snatching it away. I don't want it to be that as I read it, it's good, but as I leave my couch or my coffee table or my office or my car or my break room where I'm reading it, that I walk away and I love it, I'm excited, but five minutes later I forget what I read and I move on with life. Or that I care so much about the things of this world that as I read it, I can appreciate what it says, but as I go about my life, nothing changes and it doesn't become the transformative thing that it ought to be. Where's your heart in this conversation? And is anything stirred by the idea of on the biggest level, it is God's love story for you. And we'll talk more about the details of it, but man, you guys, while it may not always be completely understood when we read it, continue with the habit of it and realize that you and I are made to crave it. And it's when we get to that point that it becomes alive in a whole new way that that's what God designed for us. You want some homework? If you haven't read Psalm 119, 105, memorized it, take some time and do that. Just listen to Amy Grant's song. But the other part of your homework today is I want to challenge you every day this week to read Mark 4, verses 1 through 20. Every day read it. It's the story we talked about, about the heart, the soils. I want you to read it, and, and as you finish reading it, what I want you to do is stop and consider, God, where's my heart when I consider what Jesus just said? And my hope is this, that as you stop and pray, the Holy Spirit comes alive in you to reveal, you know what? A little bit of worldliness going on in here that's growing up with it. Or a little bit of shallow soil that I read it, check the box, but I move on. 
or a little bit of where the enemy isn't allowing me to, to really ha have it penetrate what's going on in here. And so it's not really changing me at all. I don't know the condition of your heart, but maybe it is you're going, you know what, I'm growing. And there's some good soil going on. Jesus wants to produce a crop in every one of our lives. I want to pray for you, but I want to challenge you. Every day, take some time. Read Mark 4, verses 1 through 20. And stop and consider what's the condition of my heart, Jesus, today. I just pray that your Holy Spirit would come alive in all of us, God. In a way that, that, that enlightens us to what's happening within. That any one of us can fall prey to, I believe, any one of these things. But my prayer is that we begin to navigate closer and closer towards what that good soil is. That you want to deal with those things in us that are destroying. You want to deal with those things in us that are burning bridges. Deal with those things in us that don't extend the kind of grace that you desire within our own selves in our lives, but also with the lives around us. God, I pray that we begin to see as we look at the scriptures in particular, see them for what they are in our lives and trust that just like Psalm 119, 105 says, your word illuminates our feet, illuminates the path you've designed for us, God. Help us walk that out as we faithfully commit to reading scripture in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to the Grove Church Message Podcast. To keep up to date with us, like us on Facebook, follow us on Instagram, or check us out at our website, grove.church.